0: Good day, everyone, and welcome to New Matter, the SLAS podcast where we interview life science luminaries. I'm your host, SLAS Scientific Director Marshall Brennan, and today we're chatting with David Sykes. David comes to us from the University of Nottingham in the UK, where he studies thermofret and Brett based thermostability assays. Brett was recently awarded the SLAS Student Poster Award, and so we're really lucky to be able to talk with him today. Welcome, David. Hi there. How are you? You know, I'm doing just fine, and I'm super happy to have you here. So tell uh, our listeners about your work on these thermostabilities assays are, especially as it pertains to the poster you gave recently.
1: Yeah, so we were particularly interested in trying to develop assays to complement current screening strategies for looking at orphan receptors. And obviously one of the things that we realize is that it's very difficult to find ligands for orphan receptors if you don't have a tracer in order to see whether ligands are binding to those receptors. So we thought that we'd be able to develop this higher throughput uh, sensitivity thermostability assays, which you can basically find hits for those orphan receptors if they're able to bind that receptor and then stabilize it. So then when you melt those receptors, if there is any binding to the receptor, then there's a, a, a shift in the thermostability curve and we were able to develop very high sensitivity thermostability assays based on this FRET and BRET technique and these are these are novel assays so they're compared to the the, maybe people the assays people are more familiar with which should be the CPM based assay so they all use these thioreactive dyes but in this case by using uh, resonance energy transfer, you get a much more specific signal once these thiol-reactive uh, dyes are bound. So this is really enabled to enhance the sensitivity of these assays towards the sort of nanoscale activity. So you need na- nanograms of protein as opposed to micrograms for the traditional CPM assays.
0: Got it. And so this is an interesting way of looking at this problem. Are thermostability assays that look at these problems from this angle common. Is this something that is frequently done in this space? So I think in terms of
1: GPCRs, I think thermostability assays are perhaps uh, underutilized, and that's probably because it's very difficult to always generate a functional protein once you've solubilized in your detergent. So one of the one of the key ways again that this these assays can really help is that. They will enable you to find the optimal conditions for the solubilization of your target protein in a very high throughput way. So, yeah, you can't you, you don't just use them to, for looking at stability in the presence of different ligands, but you can also use them to find the right detergents. And also you can, and traditionally, I think people have used radio ligands to look at the functionality. But by using these resonance energy transfer-based techniques, we're now able to move towards the use of fluorescent tracers as well. And this has another added advantage. I think this is where the field is really move, moving up towards now. I think the use of radial ligands is really starting to decline and people have really picked up fluorescent ligands as a, a novel way of studying the function of receptors, but also being able to profile binders to those receptors.
0: Can you speak to the advantages that one gets by using a fluorescent probe over a uh, radio ligand?
1: Yeah. We've been able to demonstrate activity with micromolar concentrations of fluorescent ligands. And we can still generate very specific signals because, again, of this uh, by using this resonance energy transfer. So you only see the signal from the tracer bound in close proximity with the receptor and whereas with a radial ligand you pick up all the non-specific binding to the membranes and this is something that you don't see with the resonance energy transfer techniques and the fluorescent ligands i mean by putting on fluorophores onto these the parent ligand uh, you traditionally might expect to see a drop-off in the affinity of that probe. But what we found is it doesn't really matter if the probe loses, say, 100-fold in affinity. You will still, as I say, pick up a very specific binding signal. And because the assays are homogeneous, there's no washing steps. So even if you've lost significant affinity, you won't lose those ligands in, in the wash steps like you do with radio ligands. So, yeah, they they really are
0: fantastic tools. Got it. So would it be fair to say that this is primarily more about hit detection, for lack of a better way to say it, as opposed to uh, specific quantitation?
1: Yes. I mean, that's one of the problems with fluorescent ligands is it's very difficult to get very quantitative information out. So like Bmax kind of measures of uh, receptor number are um, more difficult to obtain i mean there are some i mean people say you can use the donor signal so we, we traditionally label these receptors with a, a donor so in the case of the fret based assay we're, we're using a terbium cryptate which is a lanthanide which has a very long-lived fluorescence in order to excite the acceptor the fluorescent tracer and we also use uh, the nanolook based um system for the the brep based assays and and again that has a, a a very high sensitivity because of the amount of or the brightness of the nanolock and that it produces. So yeah I, th- I think you can potentially use say the terbium level of to estimate your receptor number if you run a kind of a standard curve, but that's not something r- people are routinely doing, I don't think at the moment.
0: Mm-hmm. So if you were speaking to someone who wanted to apply this technique, could you give a cheat sheet to determining which kinds of problems this is really well suited for and which ones it's poorly suited for, just for someone who's trying to decide which technique to use? Yeah. So I think the fret based assay, the thermo fret based assay
1: that we've developed is very useful for membrane-based targets because you, you label the target, the receptor, or it could be a G protein, using a recombinant-based system. So it's not, it's generally a receptor that has a, in our case, we put a snap tag on the end terminus and then you would label with the donor the terbium cryptate. So the nanoluc based system has the added advantage in that you you don't need to label the receptor prior to so we normally make a membrane preparation. But you wouldn't need to actually label it because it comes with the nanoluck attached. And that that enzyme will be functional in the membrane preparation that you produce. And then you add in a substrate, which uh, then produces the signal. So that particular system would be very good for intracellular and potentially soluble proteins.
0: Well, thank you for that. Well, so this sounds like some really exciting technology. Uh, I'm really excited to see not only where you take this, but where um, our listeners and other members of the research community take it in the future. Especially given that you were awarded the Student Poster Award, I want to take a step back and uh, focus a little bit on you in particular. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came about choosing this career path?
1: Yes, I can. So it's quite a long time ago now. (laughs) So It must be... Almost 30 years ago, that I, I uh, did a degree in pharmacology, actually at Leeds University in England, and I think I was particularly attracted to to pharmacology just based on reading, well, reading about drug discovery at that time and, and how how drugs were were discovered. And I, I had um, this idea that I wasn't particularly interested in medicine becoming a doctor but I thought that was a, a still a very useful type of career and it sounded very interesting. I was kind of interested in forensic science a little bit as well so the kind of the discovery aspect of that and solving problems was something that I found quite interesting. I then was very fortunate enough to after I'd got my degree in pharmacology I actually obtained a job at the James Black Foundation in South London, with Sir James Black, who obviously you know discovered beta blockers and the H two antagonists, and again uh, through working quite closely with him, that that really stimulated my interest again in drug discovery aspects and, and in quantitative and molecular pharmacology. Really, so yeah, I, I was working in in organ on organ bath preparations at the time, so like it's of gut ileum and and things like that and then it was only later i did a, a master's then in molecular biology and then i I moved away from the organ baths and started working in like plate-based assays and from there once the the, the foundation it kind of wound down once he'd retired and eventually it closed and just before it closed i'd i decided to seek employment elsewhere and i lucky enough to start working at Novartis in Horsham in the UK and again I was working in respiratory drugs and in the respiratory disease area and again I worked with a really great pharmacologist down there, Steve Charlton and that's where I really started to learn more about ready ligand binding assays. So I'd kind of got the functional side from working at the James Black and then the binding aspects so I really I had a really good overview then of pharmacology and the drug discovery process, and then I then moved to Nottingham and uh, started a part-time PhD here. And yeah, so I, I I got my degree actually just before the COVID outbreak. And again, I, I, I then joined Dmitry Viprensky's lab at Nottingham. He moved over from the PSI in Switzerland. And there, that's where I've really developed this interest in isolated GPCRs, and now I'm trying to solubilize them. And again, using the sort of pharmacological knowledge and my knowledge of sort of binding processes, that's how we develop the thermo-threat and the breath-based thermostability assays.
0: That's kind of where I've got to. Well, so it sounds like you have a real wealth of experience, and so leaning on that, I guess, what would your advice be for? you know, young scientists who are just starting out and interested in getting into this space or just any space whatsoever, whatever. Uh, What would you tell a younger version of yourself who's excited about uh, a career in research? I think
1: it's very important to sort of grow your interest, sort of immerse yourself in in your job or whatever you're studying. Because I think the more you understand, the more interested you become in the subject. I know when I, I first, I had my first job, I wasn't as interested in the science then as I am now, I think, so my interest has is, is grown every year. I'd say the more inspirational people that I've met, the more than that I've talked to, again, that's grown my interest in it as well. And I think for younger people, the key to it is to always be hungry to learn new things as well. So. And I think that helps your your employment prospects as well. So if you if you if you keep developing your skills, try not to get stuck in uh, doing one particular thing, and yeah, just kind of keep building your knowledge really. But I think the key is again uh, probably to uh, to just really enjoy what you're doing, find something you like, and yeah, really immerse yourself in it.
0: Well, thank you so much for that perspective. You know, it's a really impressive uh, story about how you got to where you are. And we're just really proud to have you as part of the SLAS community. So thank you so much for your time, David. It's been a real pleasure. Congratulations on the poster award. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing where your interests take you next. Thank you very much.